Hey everybody, the con artist here. We're here to talk about all the shows that we watched for winter 2023. Uh, all of us are here, so there's myself, Sue, there's Scott. Hello. Dan. Hey. And Brendan. Hi there. Whole team is together. Guys, it's Clamp Day. It is. Happy Clamp Day. Yeah. I almost I feel... feel like we should have a like a silly thing that we're going to pretend to review. I didn't even think about it. Yeah, I was actually thinking like we should just talk about card capture soccer for like an hour and then oh, not actually talk about anything else that we watched. <laughs> just like Kurochan check. For exactly. Kanonachiwa. <laughs> Welcome to our cast. Okay. Um yeah, well, all right. So we won't do that. We'll we'll give you the real deal. Uh so who wants to kick us off for the winter? Uh, I can kick us off for uh, the winter season. Uh, the first show that I checked out, and originally I was a little skeptical about this just based on some of the previews and the premise, but uh, I found myself really, really enjoying uh, Buddy Daddies. It's a show basically about two uh, hitmen who end up having to adopt this young, I think like four or five-year-old girl uh, after uh, one of their missions, and it's all about them learning how to raise her and, you know, keep her safe from all of the nonsense that they get up to in their daily lives while also continuing to work for this, like, shadowy organization that sends them out on, like, hit jobs and such. So it's it's a fun, it's self-contained, it's just a, it's a really solidly made show. It's goofy without being, like, without being too forced and the cast is just really really great there's there's two dudes uh who are one of them is like more of a homemaker type he's the one who makes up the plans he's you know a master of disguise bit of a confidence man type of dude and the other is like you know the cold-blooded assassin type who's also like you know really really socially inept and generally not the kind of person that you put as the face to any operation and so between the two of them you have a fun dynamic in and of themselves and then you have the girl who they adopt uh miri who is just very sweet can be a little bit much at times but i mean what precocious four-year-old isn't so it works out very well and they have to you know get her to school they have to figure out like what kind of supplies does she need what is involved in actually like getting a child through preschool uh, for two dudes in their 20s who have very poor family relations and very few skills outside of, you know, keeping uh, keeping themselves fed and, you know, killing people for the mafia. So, Dan, let me guess. Of course, cold-hearted killer guy is best dad, right? I would argue the other guy is best dad. At least he's the one who tries hardest. But the other dude really does, like, you know, he tries to get better about it. He uh, he learns how to cook better. He uh, becomes less of a slob, and he's still a lot of fun to see. He's the much more deadpan serious one of the two. Okay, all right. Yeah. Hmm. Now you've mentioned the goofy tone. Like, is it uh, like is anyone ever in danger, or is it sort of like you know, uh, I don't know, like Team Rocket shows up, that kind of level of danger? Oh no, absolutely. People are in danger a lot. Like it. It sort of uh, swings between two extremes. There's the, you know, ah, we're taking her to preschool and it's like their track and field day. So we need to support our adopted daughter on one side of it. And on the other side, you know, we it's like there is someone who has betrayed the organization who you were friends with. I need you to hunt them down and make an example of them. 
the violence is not extreme, but it is, I would say, casual. Like, you're gunning down a lot of mooks. There's some pretty gnarly stuff that happens towards the end, which, but considering who it's happening to, uh, it doesn't feel as bad as it should. It's more cathartic. Um, but it is, you know, it's definitely on the violent side. This isn't a family show, but it's still, uh, it's still pretty fun overall. It definitely leans more on the wacky, uh, wacky found family stuff than on the violence. It's just sort of like now and then they're the darker side of their lives intrudes on everything else. And they have to, you know, they have to figure out how to deal with that and what they have to keep from, uh, from this girl. Mm, okay, so like Spy X Family, this is not. Got it. Yeah, a little bit, uh, you know, half Spy X Family, half, I don't know, what's a good, uh, what's a good mafia show? Uh, 79 Days, 60-something Days, whatever that show was from a while back. Oh, uh, yeah, something Bacano. like that. And Bacano. Who could Yeah, there you Bacano. go. Yeah, there's a, there, that's not a bad, that's not a bad way of describing it. I wouldn't say it's quite as high quality as that, at least from a production standpoint, but it's good enough. It's fine. And uh, they really up the ante- with some of the fights that you get into later on in the show. But otherwise, you're really here for the characters, and they're a ton of fun. Nice. Sounds like a good watch. Yeah. Also, the fact that it's, as far as I can tell, at least, completely self-contained. By the end of the, sh of the show, the story has wrapped up, and we are moving on. So it's easy to kind of get into it, sit through the whole, sit the whole thing, and you don't have to worry, like, oh, man, is there going to be, like spin-offs or are they trying to stretch this out no you got your you got your i think 12 episodes and that's your lot just uh just sit that back and enjoy it no it's nice that's good yep who wants to uh who wants to go next sure i'll pick it up from there so i saw i guess this the second half of uh what it turns out is the first season of urusai yatsura because at the end there they were like hey season two coming someday later hey uh, so I feel like I did review this last core. So, uh, this is more just an update. Uh, it continues to be great, right? It looks great. It's fun. It's well animated. Um, they did spring for a new op and ed, uh, for the second half of the season. And they're both really great. They've been stuck in my head all season, like possibly best, you know, best op and ed of the season. Uh, so yeah, still as fun as it was. There aren't really any things I would say against it. You know, it continues to be episodic comedy, so you're not coming here for a plot, but you know, you were never really coming to Ursa Yatsura for a plot. <laughs> uh, no, you weren't. <laughs> I can't imagine you were. Right. Like, you know, I would say every, I don't know, six to eight episodes, they, they devote maybe a whole minute to the developing relationship between like main character guy and Lum. But you know, that's not what you're here for. Hmm. How would you compare it to the original, just in terms of, like, tone and overall quality? Uh, so I haven't seen the original other than to watch uh, the second movie, Beautiful Dreamer. Mm. And that's honestly been a while since I saw it. Uh, so, like, you know, I'm comparing a movie quality. I mean, the new stuff looks great. I mean, this must have, like, any any budget they asked for, they obviously got. Because, like, the animation is, is flawless. Um in terms of the comedy, like Beautiful Dreamer was actually kind of a serious movie a little bit. Mm -hmm. So it's hard to compare there also. But I mean, it's you kind of get the feeling that a lot of the plots were like drawn straight out of the original source material. Like all the vignettes have a name that probably corresponds to like a thing that happened in the manga. This is just me guessing. Uh, I sort of say that because, you know, in the opening and ending theme song, which I think I mentioned last time, like the characters using a smartphone 
but in the actual show, like no one has any smartphones. Like it's all clearly set in the time period where it was originally written. Oh, that's so. Mean. Uh, I would say, yeah, pretty, probably pretty close to the original. Not having seen it. Cool. Uh, but yeah, recommendation if that's what you're in for. It's it's funny. That's pretty amazing that the the comedy of that holds up. I don't know nearly enough about it, but it seemed like one of those, when you read the plot, you're like, oh, this is clearly a, a product of its time. I don't know how well it would do in this day and age. So the fact that you still find it funny, you know, it's pretty impressive. It has that kind of lasting comedy. That's true. I mean, uh, what's her name? Of course, I'm going to forget her name now. Uh, Rumiko Takahashi? Yeah, like the most famous, one of the most famous producers of all time. Really knows how to write comedy. <laughs> I suppose it's also one of those situations where the scenario that you're dealing with, you know, sort of the monster slash alien girlfriend kind of shtick. It I don't say it originated in that, but they were definitely one of the one of the first big ones of that nature. And so maybe oh, yeah. it's just one of those cases where all of the imitation since then has just never really matched up. So the original holds up better than a lot of the things that sort of in, were inspired by it. Yeah, I mean, I guess one of the things to say is like, yeah, it is technically speaking Alien Girlfriend. Like she, I think Lum is one of the originals, but like it's not like a, it's not a, a like a romance show. It's not like, you know, etchy stuff. It's it's almost entirely like gag comedy and physical slapstick. So like it's it's more like Lum being an alien really expands what you can do for slapstick comedy because she has all kinds of weird alien devices that make the plot of the episode something that wouldn't normally happen. Cool. Ah, okay, okay. Yeah, they're like, wow, this lipstick makes anyone who's wearing it, like, have to kiss. What'll happen when it gets into the wrong hands? You okay, know, like... all right. <laughs> That's pretty funny. Yeah, yeah. That, I mean, you can do a lot with that. It's a very open-ended field. Yeah, definitely. So, I would recommend it. Uh, who's got something else? Uh, Sue and I watched Mo Ipon, marketed in America as Ipon Again, uh, which sacrifices a little bit of wordplay there that I'm fairly certain exists, even though I'm not fluent enough in Japanese to appreciate the entirety of it. Yeah, yep. So at uh, Alba West High School, these five girls revived the judo club. And they compete to win at the Inter High tournament. It's really as simple as that. It's a, you know, cute sports show, uh, with with cute girls living it up, in judo. Uh, to me, this show was a lot of fun. I mean, it doesn't teach you the intricacies of judo by any means, but if you're watching and paying attention, you'll learn a thing or two. Uh, the characters were cute. They're bubbly. Like our main team from Alba West has really great chemistry right off the bat. Uh, you know, the show has pretty decent animation. One thing I want to point out is that there are varied body types. And I actually found this really interesting. My husband pointed one thing out at first. He was like, do you realize that all these girls are drawn like purposely kind of chunkier, like a little bit bigger and... It makes a lot of sense for the physicality needed for judo. So it was actually like animated well for what the sport entailed, in my opinion, which was neat. 
Um, there's also numerous instances of like girls being much bigger and the show never makes jokes at their expense. Like it's never like, oh no, it's the fat one. Let's all like laugh about it. Instead, it's like, how do we compete against girls with like that level of body mass and still be able to, to throw them? So that was pretty interesting. In terms of learning about judo, does judo have weight classes or can you have any size matchup? Judo does have weight classes. Okay. At the inter-high, though, the inter-high tournament they're at, it's anything goes. Oh, so oh boy. So you could get paired with a girl who's in a completely different weight class, and actually, based on the moves that they have, the throws, the pins, you have to be very strategic, because if a, if a girl is much larger than you are, you know, something like a pin is going to be significantly more complicated. Because that other girl has just the mass to completely move out, twist out of it. So that kind of stuff was really interesting. And like I said, because I was paying attention, that was that was neat to learn. Um, The other thing I just I cannot grasp how everyone who does judo doesn't pop their arm out of their socket every 10 seconds. Like watching (laughs) these girls perform the throw like holy macaroni, the you know, you, you spin around, you got to imagine, you spin around, you grab the girl by the arm, like stretched out and you flip her physically over your body. I'm like, the minute the opposite person resists, their arm should come like clean out of the socket. I'm, I'm really amazed how this sport works. So interesting stuff. Mm. Must be a lot of training on how not to get hurt at the beginning. Yes. Pretty sure that's a big part of it. Yeah. Right. How to throw, how to fall. You know, those are all really important skill sets. Um, they bring those up in the uh, show? Well. I mean, one of the girls doesn't even compete because she's too new to the uh, sport. Oh. Yeah, they do mention, you know, if you're very new, you just don't have the techniques down yet and you could really hurt yourself. So that does get brought up. Um, Brendan, I'm going to open the floor for some of your opinions. I do have other things to say, but, you know, do you have anything to add from those first points I gave? Um, girls are cute. Uh, the, uh, it suffers a little bit, just a little bit from, uh, the, the talking is a free action trope and like by necessity commentary on such a fast paced sport sort of like is, is done the, the occasional cutaway to either like the characters of mental narration or like people on the sidelines talking for something that takes like a second to actually occur. Oh, so the fights sort of feel like they're they're getting dragged out? Uh, not dramatically. Okay. Like, every once in a while, it's like, oh, you know, she's doing this move, and, you know, we need to understand how this is significant. Uh, and then we, like, we get back into it. The fights are not typically very long. Hmm. Yeah, I, you know, overall, I, I like this show, And it's something I would certainly watch more of, but it's also something that if this was it, I'm I'm going to watch, have watched this and it's just going to phase out of my, my memory. Like all the characters didn't have like enough oomph to, to stand out in a, you know, anime sea littered with shows like this. Uh, with this, you know, runtime of 13 episodes, we just aren't given enough time to know all of the girls super, super well. There's like, a lot of rapid fire rivalries were fed and these really seemingly difficult situations that they're thrown into that are like, ah, this is supposed to have emotional weight. But I'm like, I barely know this rival girl for like half an episode. So I don't have the emotional backing to, 
to really, you know, care much. They introduced the fifth girl quite late in the in the season, and then like her, literally her backstory was given what last episode, right, Brennan? 12. Oh my goodness. I was like, we don't have time for your backstory. Like, we did get some of it, but then they gave even more of it later. And they were, it, it's like they're trying to backpedal and be like, care about what's going on. Yeah, there are way too many characters for how short this show is. Mm. Yes, yes, definitely. Pacing wise, the show just, it has a problem where it just moves too fast. Um, you know, there's we have to rapidly progress through tournaments and stuff like that like we meet a major rival character in episode i think it's like five and my husband and i were watching and i was like this feels like the end of the season kind of matchup <laughs> like like they're crying as they you know the one girl defeats the other and it was like oh my gosh this was a rivalry from middle school that we've resolved or whatever and then like boom we're just like in the inter-high tournament like move 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 and with with teams being groups of five, you know, it's just like throw our main girls in front of, you know, this batch, this batch, this batch. You don't have the, the breathe room to really make these girls all that interesting. So mm. that gets that gets kind of rough. But, you know, overall, it was fun. I, I think if you're in the mood for a cute sports show, you know, with a nice cast of characters. I think it's it's really fun. The other thing I just really want to bring up quick is that all the girls play this in-world, like, dating game. And it's it's amazing. Like, guys, literally, like, every girl on every team plays it. And so they'll just have, like, a random cutaway of them, like, playing this dating game, trying to, like, date these one or two particular guys. And I don't even... It's just, like, this weird in-universe thing that I found hilarious and cute and consistent, so... <laughs> very funny <laughs> it's how a lot of the girls will relate to each other they'll be like oh my gosh you're also trying to date like prince whoever in this game like it's very funny it's a nice side detail I like that yeah yeah it's cute so but yeah I would say if you're in the mood for something like that go for it but if not you know you're not gonna lose out on anything by skipping it all right. Agreed. Oops, sorry. I uh, guess I'll jump in then with um, Near Automata version 1.1a. Uh, so unsurprisingly, based on the title, this is a anime adaptation of Near Automata, uh, itself a sequel, well, spin-off sequel thing to the original Near, uh, which is also tied into Drakengard, a <laughs> game series that Scott is deeply deeply familiar with and traumatized by but um so i have played through the game and so this show i was just sort of curious about how they were going to go about adapting it because its story structure is very unique and weird uh basically you have to go through several playthroughs beating the game as from different perspectives several times before you get the complete story and in amongst that uh, the game classic. can and the end. The game can end in a lot of different ways, uh, abruptly in some cases, um, and I was curious to see how they would handle it. And unfortunately, the show is a bit of a casualty of the whole pandemic situation. So only the first eight, I believe, episodes uh, premiered, which more or less covers the first uh, the first playthrough of the game. Um, 
And that's pretty much it for now. The rest of it is sort of going to be released at an indeterminate point in the future, which means mm. that it leaves. I, I can't recommend it in its current state just because it's going to be just cliffhanger and no one's going to. If you haven't played the game, you're not going to know what's going on. And if you have played the game, it's pretty much going to retread the part of the game that you're most likely the most familiar with. And so I think this is one of those things where tragically you're probably going to have to wait until the whole thing is out before you can judge it properly. That having been said, I loved the game from a design standpoint, but from a story perspective, I found it a little bit overhyped. Uh, they talk about how, you know, philosophical it is and how it's all about, you know, the meaning of existence and interpersonal bonds and yada, yada, yada. You know, this is a world where humanity is extinct and it's a fight between androids and these things called machine life forms, which are much more primitive robots that only have very basic understandings of social behaviors. So they take everything either to some sort of weird extreme or they mimic things they've seen uh, from like human history so there is some interesting commentary here and there as far as that goes, but it's not at, it's not as deep as I think some people believe it is, at least to me. And I don't think it's a I don't think it's a bad story. I think it's got some interesting things to say, but I think that uh, some folks put a little too. I think they they get more out of it than I do. So maybe that's your thing. Maybe you'll find more to enjoy from it. As an adaptation, it does some interesting stuff by after the first uh, episode, which adapts the very beginning of the game almost shot for shot. It then sort of focuses more on the side stories and vignettes of characters sort of surrounding the main cast, which is interesting because it gives you a lot more sort of depth of understanding of the world. Um, so if you're a fan of the game and enjoyed... Uh, more of like the side content and learning more about the other people in the world that you encounter, then it's probably worth it for you. But personally, I didn't really find it particularly compelling or interesting. Not bad, just kind of eh. Yeah, it doesn't stand on its own well, it sounds like. I would say so. Like if you don't know the if you don't know what's going on from the game, then I don't know how much you're going to get out of it, but it's also very hard to judge that effectively as someone who has played the game. Maybe someone who's not familiar with it or doesn't want to dedicate the so, so many hours that it takes to beat that game to get the true ending. Uh, the, the anime may be a good alternative for that because the story, while it has its issues, I think is not, you know, it's certainly strong enough to be interesting if that's the sort of thing that you're into. Mm, all right. I will say that it did include one thing that made me chuckle, and that is in the game, you know, it's notorious for having not just multiple regular endings that you get by completing the story. It also has a lot of other endings that happened because of the many varied ways that your character can die. <laughs> so <laughs> oh, beside, dear. yeah, besides just being defeated in battle or losing to bosses or other things, like your characters are androids, so like they don't behave the same way as humans. For example, you you manage your skills through a series of these like implant chips. One of the implant chips that you have from the very beginning is your operating system. And if you and you can remove these various things to like slot in new skills. It's a really elegant system and really cool from a gameplay perspective. But if you remove that OS chip, which the game 100% allows you to do, then your character simply shuts down and dies. <laughs> 
or if you like eat this particular kind of fish because the like caustic oils in it are terrible for android guts it also kills you that way and the and the show does this little like live action puppet bit at the very end before the main credits roll to demonstrate these various ends and other like ways the game can the way ways the game can end uh abruptly as your character gets like taken out of the fight or like leaves to go fishing or some other ridiculous nonsense <laughs> so i will say that that was actually quite cute and i that appreciate that they adorable. because when was the last time you saw a show do its weird like a story aside where the characters speak directly to camera to explain weird stuff about the world like they do in friggin uh die guard and such Oh, yeah, like Die Guard or like Welcome to Lodos Island. Yeah, those sorts of things. Or Gunbuster or any of those other ones. It's like just it's a very fun shtick that I feel like not enough shows uh, embrace anymore. That's true. Whatever happened to Nani Naze Nadesico, you know? That is quite cute. That about covers it. Like I said, didn't personally get a lot out of it. Feel like it needs it really needs to be, you know, out in its entirety before I can judge it accurately. But if you don't have the time to sit the game and you're still interested in the story, it could be worth it for you. All right. Sounds good. I'll pick it up from there with um uh like Irima, the third season of Irima, which I also kind of feel like I talked about last time. Now it's, you know, the season's ending as of this core. Uh it continues to be fun and well-made, so everything I said last time is still there. Uh, this particular season had a more action-heavy focus, which is a break from previous seasons, which are more like some action, a lot of school stuff. Uh, so this one was more like, I, w- I wouldn't say exactly a tournament arc, but it was sort of like everyone goes out and has a competition. Uh, but like everyone's all competing all at once. It's like a four-day survival event rather than like a one-on-one tournament fighter. So they found a way to break the Shonen formula, and I think it was a good way to do it. Um, a lot of lesser characters get a chance to shine this season. So, like, you know, Irima is basically in a class of other characters, like a, a school class. And, like, all pretty much everyone in his class gets screen time and significant screen time uh, in this season, which is cool because, like, some of them really hadn't been that developed as characters up till now. And in some cases, you're like, oh, I guess these guys are going to be characters now. <laughs> I wasn't really sure in the previous seasons if they were just there to fill out the backgrounds or not. Uh, Which they actually pulled right at the end of the show. They were like, what about this other character? And everyone in the class is like, who? And they cut back to a scene from like the first episode of the first season. They're like, remember this guy in the background shot? He's a character and you all forgot about him. (laughs) Shame on you. Shame on you and you, the audience. Like, here's this a, a new challenge that no one had even imagined would exist is here because this character has existed this long and we haven't been doing anything with him, <laughs> which I thought was actually really funny. Um, uh, let's see, in terms of anything to say against it, uh, because we're in this, like, huge survival game tournament event, kind of, and we're jumping between all these different characters, it can seem like... I don't know, like not all that much happened to any of the like the main characters or really any character. Like we're just jumping around. We see a given event from multiple different perspectives. So certainly you have a really good sense of what went down during the event. But also it does feel like there aren't that many things that actually happened. Uh, like when you sit back and think about it, I mean, they make it all quite dramatic and, and well done in the show. But then you're like, 
oh yeah, that, that was just like a fight between two groups of students that we just saw from so many different perspectives. Uh, but it was fun. Irma continues to be fun. It's a good show. Uh, I can definitely recommend it. My only sadness is that this season we didn't hear, we didn't have any musical numbers from Clara Valak's family, which were like a really high point for me of the first season. Uh, but hey, here's hoping they'll they'll bring it back in the the fourth season. That's your punishment for forgetting that character from season one, episode one, Scott. That's true. No musical numbers for you. No musical mm-hmm. numbers. Oh come on. Aww. Uh, but yeah, recommended if you're already on the train. I mean, I, the, the show as a whole is also recommended up to this point if you like decide you want to go start it. But uh, good stuff. Who's got something next? Speaking of uh, continuing anime, uh, I'm following the second uh, season of I Don't Want to Get Hurt So I'll Max Out My Defense or Bofuri. Oh, yeah. Uh, and... It's uh, it's more of the same, I guess, which uh, is a good thing because the original show was also very like cute and funny. Yeah, that was a really good take. The original, which I did see, a really good take on the like. It's not even an isekai. She's just playing a video game and having fun. What more do you want? It's true. Uh, I think in this one we like in the original like by necessity sort of they started out with like showing the characters in real life. I don't think that's actually happened in this one. Like the entire focus of the show is like zoomed into the game world so we only ever see them as they interact with like uh, their guildmates and other rivals oh okay and cutaways to the weird developers which are all rendered in like weird like obvious 3d which is an interesting touch hmm. oh yeah those guys i can't remember them now as they like uh rack their brains over what to do to their game that's not going to allow maple to break it wide open <laughs> <laughs> And when she has broken it wide open, should we nerf it, or does everyone love the new change too much? Hmm. <laughs> uh, but she continues to like. <laughs> it's true. She continues to like trip into uh, bizarre superpowers, which they have like hidden around the game world. Still, they haven't stopped doing that. <laughs> really seems like they're uh, setting themselves up here, honestly. Look, you're not going to upend your entire design spec just because one random person has managed to bumble their way into godhood. <laughs> it's when everyone else starts exploiting it that you start to get worried. So, Brendan, is it more like her continuing adventures trying to use this character that is at max defense? Or is it her trying to get used to these new powers she finds in the game? Like... Now that she's like so powerful, what what are we really doing? I mean, they keep releasing new content. Uh, so we spend some time on like floor six or like zone six, or I forget exactly how they delineate whatever releases they do. Uh, and it's, you know, everybody uh, gathers together and be like, hey, we want to go explore the like the haunted mansion or whatever. And or or go gather other supplies because like you've got the uh the crafter member of the guild you've got the person who reads all the lore uh and a couple of other normies all right so there's kind of having fun on an adventure because like in the first season from what i remember there's a lot of like how is our small guild going to compete against these big guilds you know yeah, I guess I'm having a hard time understanding the central conflict. Like, is she One Punch Man style just showing up to these events and being like, whoops, I defeated it in seven seconds because my defense is maxed out? Or like, 
Is she having to work around the fact that she dumped all her points into defense and then having to scramble around the skills she doesn't have? Uh, so she picks up a couple of skills in the first season and then another one or two of them in this season that allow her to uh, deal damage without or like that have good um, base damage rather than relying on her attack stat. Uh, plus she has a, uh, a pet and which also has a horrifying spirit beam attack. That's right. That's the, the turtle, right? Yes. The turtle's great. It's the floating turtle. Uh, let's see. Some of this season is devoted to other characters getting pets. They have like released tameable monsters into the world so that, uh, people other than just Maple and Sally can have animal companions that augment their skills. So like trying to bridge that uh, gap that, uh, emerged and like there's another competition that they go through at, at the end of this uh, season and it's it's tiered in a, a weird way that I don't remember quite exactly how it works again off the top of my head but it's uh, I don't know, it's basically them trying to like synergize all of their guild uh, abilities or all their abilities within their guild okay so she can't do it all herself so it's good if it's more of the same that sounds like it's pretty fun yeah, I'm digging it. All right, I can jump back in with uh, Trigon Stampede. So oh, here's yeah. a show I don't think any of us expected to get rebooted or remade. Um, yeah, right. Though they did, I suppose, have that movie a few years back. Uh, not that I saw it, so I can't really compare there. Um, but Trigon Stampede was a bit of a roller coaster journey for uh, me and the folks I was watching it with. Um, so... First off, uh, it's C it's all CG animated, and mm. frankly, the animation's actually pretty good. It's fairly consistent. Uh, the expressions are generally good. I do contend that um, CG often works better for, like, slapstick comedy just because you get characters with these, like, this kind of, like, frenetic movement that CG allows for more easily than 2D animation. You lose some of the stylizing, but you still get some of that energy. So I think it works very well in that case, though I do think that the camera work could definitely stand to settle down sometimes because there's definitely places where this did not need to be one long tracking shot. And just because someone can be moving all the time doesn't necessarily <laughs> mean they should be. Like, you'll have background characters, like, gesticulating wildly and going nuts, where if you were watching an anime, they'd be, like, cycling between two or three frames of repeated animation, and you'd still get the same point without it distracting from what's happening in the foreground. So uh, that's a long way of saying that the CG's fine, honestly. It's not the thing that, you know, it's not the thing that's going to make or break the show for you, and I think that overall they handle it pretty well. Um... The new character designs, I'm kind of mixed on. I think, you know, they all look fine, but I'm still a sucker for the original. They've really lost a lot of the old Wild West aesthetic from the oh, original. What? Oh, which, boy. How do you do yeah. that? Uh, well, like, Vash is no longer wearing, like, this long leather coat or anything. He's wearing what amounts to, like, this bulky hoodie. And uh, Meryl is no longer wearing the, like, long uh, cloak that she wears that's usually filled with Derringer. She was wearing just, like, a jacket and shorts. What? It, what? It was. I mean, it was. It, it it covered her. It covered her. It covered her torso, from what I remember. But uh, the thing is, is just like, yeah, everyone's outfits. Like, I don't say they look bad, but they definitely don't have the same charm or kind of timeless nature that the other ones did. 
Uh, I just, I preferred the original character designs. Now, is the world still like a Western sort of desert setting? Or is this like... Yes. I don't know okay. how you could get away from that. It is, but it's all, but like the the ties to like the, the, Ameri- the steampunk American West are a lot less obvious. Um, you know, there's more modern technology. There's more... Uh, like modern fashion and style. Like you, you have a bunch of soldiers running around with what are obviously like super modern uh, assault rifles and other things. It Not that you didn't see elements of that in the original anime. I can't speak to the manga, but it definitely was more of these are things that are cobbled together from like half-remembered diagrams and stuff, not like slickly manufactured polycarbonate like stuff. It's... It's hard to explain, but I do feel like the world has lost a lot of that personality. And I know that, you know, some people say like, oh, you have to take, you know, a different adaptation on its own merits. It's really hard when, you know, this is such a, you know, for me, at least a very formative series. So I admit that this is one of those things that I have deep nostalgia for. Um, And I just feel like the original aesthetic was a lot stronger and more memorable compared to this. Um, story-wise, they also really change around the whole timeline of everything. Again, I cannot speak to the original manga, so maybe it follows closer to that, but, like, when characters meet and when certain major events happen is completely out of order from what you might be familiar with in, uh, in the original show, which is where I guess, I'm guessing most people are probably familiar with it. And so it leaves the story, like, rushing through its 12 episodes to this like big knockdown drag out world ending conclusion and then making it seem like there's going to be another season. Huh? And so it feels like okay. they peak so fast that I don't see any way that it's going to continue and not feel like we're just doing this either for fan service to bring back characters that weren't included this season or to like wrap up storylines that, you only would know about if you've seen the original. There are entire character arcs that are missing. There's entire relationships and individuals that either don't exist or have been changed so much that they're essentially unrecognizable. There's a point where they're in a setup for one of the major like side villains that shows up for a short arc, and he doesn't show up. His gang is there. The, the scenario in which he appears is all there, and then they have someone else show up who's completely unrelated and the rest of the like weird heist story that's going on is just sort of a weird background detail. I huh. don't understand what they were going for with the way they rearranged the story. That so Dan, you bizarre. mentioned this was a you mentioned this was like a roller coaster. I'm not getting the highs. Like I'm feeling the lows of this show. Like what the sh- the show what are the highs. I will say the show opens the, the first two or three episodes, I was really, like, I was a little dubious at first with the changes. Then it really kind of engaged me. That was where the high hit. It was, like, episode two and three because they introduce a major antagonist way, way earlier than they do in the original one. And you get to see just how dangerous this person is. And that was something that the back half of the original Trigun definitely struggled with was because of the way it was produced and the amount of time that they had the second half of it didn't feel as 
well thought out as the first. It was much more about this kind of slow, like, hey, these are these goofy adventures this guy is going on. Now we're going to introduce a bunch of people whose sole purpose seems to be to mess with him on behalf of a bigger bad somewhere else. And you eventually learn more about why Vash is the way he is, you know, what his background is like before everything is revealed much, much later. In this, his entire backstory is essentially revealed in the intro to episode one. So they explain oh, wow. what this... They explain a lot more of what the overall stakes are and what he's doing and why it's important within the first, I'd say, three episodes. And that, in a lot of ways, like, I like that they establish the stakes. I like that they establish the, you know, the the villain and the overarching plot of what's going on. The problem with that is that you no longer have the uh, sort of laid-back beginning where you can introduce these characters through their actions and through their behavior as they sort of move from town to town, getting into scrapes, uh, piecing together, you know, various local uh, stories and goings on to get a good idea of what everyone's about and why. It doesn't feel as naturalistic. Instead, from that episode, it's pretty much just a breakneck pace towards the end with a few uh, times where we cut back to the past to fill in like every gap in Vash's backstory, which removes a lot of the mystery that made him interesting. And he's no longer as much the kind of lovable doof that you know, is trying to is trying to do good, but keeps getting himself caught up in scrapes. Now he's really just a pretty sad boy, and it doesn't work for me. Mm. Yeah, wow, I can't see that working at all. Yeah, it, it's really upsetting because, like, there's elements of it. Like I said, the way that it opens, some of the you know, some of the ways in which they sort of rebalance the story that I do like, but I feel like by reshuffling things as dramatically as they did, they're going to alienate people who liked the original. And I don't know if this is necessarily going to bring in new fans the way that they might be expecting. So if nothing else, it's made me really inspired to go back and watch the original, you know, <laughs> janky though it though it may have been. I remember scenes from that that are seared into my memory from my, you know, from my you know, my childhood and teenage years. So I think that it's going to be interesting rewatching that with a fresh set of eyes. Yeah. Yeah, it sounds okay. If all the only thing I got you to want to do is go watch the original, then <laughs> I guess it has Success. some good effect. <laughs> all right, who's up? Sure, I'll take it from here with a uh, sugar apple fairy tale. That's a lot of words, Scott. <laughs> Mashed together. They put a lot of things together. This isn't uh, tiny snow fairy sugar, so an important distinction. Uh, so this is, I would say, like shoujo romance would be like the the overall genre here the setting is um it's like an alternate like a like a medieval fantasy kind of world and in this one there are fairies who have been enslaved by humans uh and there's also a i guess a craftsman job an artisan job where the artisans make really fancy temporary sculptures out of sugar sp special sugar um, that people like to eat. They're used for celebrations and also the fairies, uh, like it's the only thing the fairies can like taste that has flavor. Uh, and so the protagonist is a girl who is a craftsman and goes on a journey to try to become basically like recognized by the kingdom. There's a, there's a once yearly sort of craftsman, I don't know, not exactly tournament, like you show your piece and they pick the best one. 
We're just going to call it Bake Off because I love that show. That's great. It's a Bake Off and she wants to be, she wants to win the Bake Off. And in the, mean, in the middle, uh, when there isn't a Bake Off on, she goes on local adventures in the kingdom and like her craftsman skills are used to solve problems. Uh, that sort of thing. So it's an interesting setting. It all looks very good. Uh, the opening theme is really like pretty engaging. Uh, the romance is pretty engaging. So the idea here is the this young girl goes in and like basically buys a fairy slave who is a warrior to protect her as, as her bodyguard. And they end up in a romance together as she kind of melts his heart because he's been around for a long time and hates humans. Uh, also, the sugar confections themselves are beautiful. They really do a good job of having the visuals on these things live up to the praise being showered on them by the characters, which sometimes that's a gap that doesn't work when there's like a song or something and everyone's like, it's the best song ever written. And you're like, I don't know. The sugar confections are really quite beautiful. Uh, what would I say against it? It has a little bit to me of like, it's the rising of the shield hero for girls. I was literally mm. going to ask you this. I was going to wait till you had your like description of the whole thing. And I was going to ask, how does it do with regards to the slavery angle? Right. I, I remember you thinking that was really gross in Shield Hero. It's super gross in Shield Hero. Um, here, I guess they try to reframe it. So the idea is like the main character needs this bodyguard. And I'll get to this in a minute to make it through a dangerous part of the kingdom but she also, like, wants to be friends with fairies in general. Um, and, like, once they're through the dangerous part, sets him free. Like, basically, humans control fairies by holding on, like, ripping off one of their wings and holding onto it. And if they damage the wing, the fairy will die. So Jeez. they sort of control them that way. It's a little like, um, what are the, are the selkies? Yeah, it's a little like the selkie and the, uh, yeah, their, um, their cloak sort of that lets them go into the water. Uh, but it's more like, you know, I could crush this in my hand sort of thing. Whereas with the Selkie, it's more like, you know, the, the legend goes, I burned the cloak. You can't go home. You have to stay here. But yeah, they both have a similar thing. So she sets him free by returning his wing to him. And by that time, they're good enough sort of, I guess, friends. Like they've been through difficulties together and it ends up becoming romantic over time in a context where the fairy is free to leave if he wants so I think that does improve things compared to Rising of the Shield Hero. Uh, what else? Okay, good to know. Yeah. Uh, it also, I think a con for me, it kind of feels like the world stops right at the edge of what you can see. Like, it, all the plot events in the show revolve around sugar confection making, even though there's clearly a lot of other things going on in the kingdom. Uh, every challenge or thing we learn about the world only seems to exist when the plot needs it to and not at any other time. So I mentioned the setup where she needs to have this warrior fairy to protect her. And it's because she's going on a place called the Bloody Highway, which is between her house out in the country somewhere and like the capital city of the kingdom. And it is a place where there is no public order. Like there's these forts that are all abandoned. There's no like guards or anything. There's just bandits and apparently like gigantic flocks of bloodthirsty crows who are so thirsty that they will drink your blood. Sounds like a dandy old place to live. Right. Like it implies like a kingdom that's in complete decline where everything is sort of like there's no they're barely able to keep the peace within their own borders. But then, you know, she makes it past the place and gets to the capital city. And it's like, you know, everyone's happy. The king looks you know good. There's citizens that are 
enjoying like local entertainments. They've got a functioning military. Later on, there is a plot where there's like, they're suppressing a rebellion or something that she's sort of tangentially like nearby. And the kingdom is certainly able to muster up enough guys to make that the dramatic threat of the, of the, the arc. So it's sort of like, you're never really sure if anything matters except what's directly happening to the character, but it makes for a kind of incoherent world building, I guess. But really, you're here for the romance, and it's pretty well done. Uh, I will say that this is season one. It turns out there's season two, a thing which you basically discover in the last minute of the show. <laughs> when it re- has Surprise! A... That seems to be a running theme this season, isn't it? Yeah, you're like, oh, I think I know how this is going to go. And they're like, unbelievable spin around gut punch and you're like are you kidding me so and they're like surprise season two like i could not believe the way this show ended wow okay so like you know me me and my partner are both like what you're gonna end it like that <laughs> and then like we had to go to the internet and they're like oh season two has been announced and we're like well thank god uh, and, and you know what it worked like we're both like well now we gotta see season two to see how they get out of this did she make a giant sugar confection robot and smash a guy right in front of the slave oh wait sorry wrong show wrong show wrong show uh i won't tell you because it is sort of a big twist but uh i don't know if you, if you do see it you'll be surprised and you'll understand um i guess that's about it i do i do i think recommend it if that's what you're looking for if you're looking for like this kind of like romance scenario. It's, I think it's well done. The world's interesting. Everything looks good. Uh, guess that's about it. What do you guys got next? It's time for some shonen punching, the exact opposite of <laughs> romance sugar confection making. It's true. <laughs> uh, yeah, so I'll take over with uh, My Hero Academia season six. This is the second half. This ends uh, season six. So I'm really in awe that this is the same show, guys, genuinely. Uh Like we went from Dragon Ball Z in the first half to a show about like eugenics, the trials of being a symbol of justice in the public eye, crowd dynamics when a city is like under threat. All of this is happening in the second half, like it's so good to it's me. It's good. Oh, wow. Yes. Right. It's, it's, it's mind-blowing. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't even understand how this is the other half of, of the season. I really don't. Like, the show benefits immensely, in my opinion, from the lack of Shigaraki and All for One. Like, they're kind of put on ice because the show is like, oh, no, they're building up their power to be an ultimate threat in another season. So we have time to do other things that aren't Dragon Ball Z punching. Uh, and it gives us, you know, a look at the aftermath of a city gone completely mad, basically, of a country gone completely mad. Like, all of Japan is is really under siege here. And, um, we, you know, we kick off with Todoroki's family history, which is genuinely heartbreaking. I think we've gotten bits and pieces of it throughout the story, but Endeavor being hell-bent on having a child with a superior quirk to All Might, you know, really hits hits very hard and you get to see how that went down actually in one of the cores i forget which one it was like when i was talking about season one or season two i had mentioned that the story had given off vibes that endeavor had chosen his wife specifically because so his quirk is super hot and his 
he creates flames from his body and then his wife makes ice from hers and i was like oh it, it it almost gave off vibes that he chose her so that he could counterbalance the quirk he has like his children would be have an easier time balancing out their bodies and that was just it's completely wrong like endeavor is the worst <laughs> like he was the worst guy just horrendous and and you know the suffering he he uh, reaps upon his children is just the worst, and he's sewing it back to now, right? Like so, massive spoilers. I'm I'm just gonna go with it. If you're watching this far out, you're probably either a manga reader and already knew this, or you're watching with us. So Dobby, who's a main villain we've had since season one, it turns out is the eldest of his four children, who went completely mad after not being able to live up to Endeavor's expectations of, of having a child that would surpass All Might. And it, it really is hard, you know? Like, we've known Dobby a long time, so getting this reveal was, like, really rough, and all the aftermath of it. Like, in the public eye, the entirety of Japan is like, wait a minute, you're the number two hero. We're supposed to be, like, backing and supporting you. You represent justice the way All Might once did, and you are just the worst. Like... You're just an awful human being, and it's really that, you know, crowd dynamic of, of crushing him out societally, and I thought it was done really, really well. I hate to say it's, like, cancel culture, because that's such an ugly term, but it really is just society, like, turning on him and him having to face, you know, what he's, he's kind of sowed there, family-wise, which was great. Um, the populace at large is reacting to feeling unsafe. I mean, I think this is what the show does best is takes this idea of like justice and heroes and the hero society and twists it up, right? Like everyone is desperately trying to grapple with the idea of what does it mean to be a hero when the general populace doesn't back you anymore? Like hero society really, you know, it's, it's a job. People, people get paid to do it. You go to work for an agency and that is easy to do when society backs you and is happy to see you and supports you. But when there's a major threat and people now feel like as heroes, you couldn't stand up to it and you did nothing to prevent it. It's, it's really tough now. They're almost like vigilantes running around because when the populace sees them, they're like, get out of here. We don't want you. They're actually having instances, like they show some instances where people are buying black market accessories to fight villains themselves because really quick aside like all for one blows up a major prison known as Tartarus and lets out like some of the worst of the worst villains that are basically on like death row and they're running around attacking the populace so people are like yeah we don't trust heroes they're worthless we're just gonna buy black market accessories to defend ourselves and these people have no clue how to use these things. So they're like hurting themselves. They're hurting other civilians. It's really chaotic. And there's this desperation to move them to safe spaces. I mean, I, I really loved it because it's, it's really interesting world building dynamics that show you that, you know, this is how a hero society functions and this is how it falls apart. So I really liked it. I don't yeah. know. You know, Dan, how you felt, but I'm really in shock that this is the same show. You distilling it down like that has definitely helped me kind of get a better handle on my own feelings. Um, I agree that it's nice because I think I I I, I complained uh, some seasons ago that 
it feels like they talk about society and heroes place in it and they talk a lot about that but because so much of our experience is through the eyes of these kids we're seeing it from the we're seeing the world from the narrow perspective of academia we're you know we're sealed away in this ivory tower where everyone's a hero or training to be and so the impact on the rest of the world is really just like the occasional day trip or like training mission so the only other perspective we ever got to see for a long time was just the heroes or the villains. And this episode or this season, I should say is really good at showing, like you said, what that society looks like in breakdown when like dissent has been fomented. They talked for a really long time about how like all of these people are sowing like distrust about the heroes and everything. And then Shigaraki's attack and the revelations about Endeavor really are what break that. You know, now that you no longer have All Might, who's like the one unambiguously like beloved hero running around to sort of be that public face, to be that symbol of justice, everything else sort of the 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 foundation is cracked and now it's starting to crumble. So it felt that part of it like I really, really liked for me. I did not find Midori's uh, vigilante arc to be all that compelling mainly because he's just so bad at it. <laughs> he's so, like, his personality does not fit it very well. And it kind of was a foregone conclusion that he's eventually going to get dragged back by his friends that him being like this, you know, putting on this weird, like edgy sort of Batman persona, or at least like the, him being framed that way as like way more monstrous and feral wasn't going to hold up for very long and it didn't they they knew that that was uh that was a play that could only last for a short period of time but um i did like that you know it took all of these people working together to pull off a ridiculous scheme to overwhelm him to the point where they could actually drag him back to a place where he could actually rest and take a break from his you know sort of one-man crusade against the escaped villains um, so that part of it, you know, it becoming, coming back to being more of a team operation is something that I really appreciated because it, it has felt like for the few seasons before this, that the team aspect of it, like is there at the beginning of any arc and then falls away very quickly when it just becomes, how is this one superpowered hero going to, uh, overcome this other superpowered villain who's on such a higher level than everyone else? And I know that's not their intention, but that's how it always seems like it shakes out. And in this case, it was much more, how are we all going to band together to overcome this situation that's now grown beyond our ability to control? Yeah, agreed. I guess really quick on the downsides, it still has that shonen mumbo jumbo. Like at mm. one point they flash back to Shigaraki and they're just like, oh no, like he's building up his power by fusing his consciousness with something. Like I just let it wash clean over me. I was like, don't <laughs> care. <laughs> like can't even with Doesn't this. Doesn't matter. <laughs> Moving on. Yeah. The, and... the villain's stuffed in the closet somewhere and eventually he's going to fall out. Right. And we're going to remember that that's the main plot. Yeah, exactly. The other thing that cracked me up, like I have to tell you guys this, there's one quote-unquote villain that shows up really early in Midoriya's vigilante arc. Her name is Na Lady Nagant. She's awesome. Like, she has... Her elbow can, like, open up and she fires a rifle out of it and she can, like, use her hair to make bullets and then control where the bullets go. It's really cool. But, like, Midoriya defeats her and it turns out that, like, all for one had sent her as an assassin to get rid of him and, and had implanted something in her, right? 
And Midori is trying to, like, save her, and she basically explodes. Like, guys, there's, like, light coming out of her face and Uh cracked, and she explodes, okay? And then she just falls on the ground, and she's got all the, like, you know, artistically, she's got, her skin looks burnt and all that stuff, and they're just like, call an ambulance! (laughs) And I was like, right, what are you going to tell them? She exploded, man. She exploded. Come get her. Like, she's dead, guys. She's dead. I don't think she is because of Shonen BS rules, but I was like, I was complaining last time that the show is going way off course with making everyone's powers, like everyone's quirks, less about real physical boundaries. And like, I just, I don't know, my husband and I were cracking up. We're just like, no, no, don't call the ambulance. She exploded. It's over now. I just I found that right. No, no so you know what I've I've seen enough shonen to know. Literally, the only time anyone can die is if they cough and go, "I know my body well enough." That's it. You're right. That's the only You're time you can right. die in a shonen. Okay. All right, and I need to super end with prepare yourselves for this. So I was like, okay, this half was was good. Okay, but then guys, so the like we're closing in on the finale of this show. Shigaraki is, is going to fall out of the closet. He's the biggest threat, not only to Japan, he is actually a threat to the world. So All Might has called upon allies from other countries. And everyone's like, we need to answer the call of Japan. Oh my God, really is it tequila dangerous. mech? Oh my gosh, no, Scott, prepare yourself. So they're like, someone has answered the call, even though they weren't supposed to move yet. Oh my gosh, guys. The last <laughs> scene of this season is a woman who looks like designed exactly like All Might and she's in like Wonder Woman-esque outfit, this giant cape and she is riding two B-52 bombers while a fleet of B-52 bombers follows her from behind and she's like, it is I, stars and stripes from America who will answer the call of All Might. And I was like, this show just received a 20 out of 10. (laughs) This scene alone. And my husband was like, fuck yes, the the person who would answer the call of All Might is America and show up without being told they can go with a fleet of B-52 bombers. <laughs> like, <laughs> 20 wow. out of 10 people for that scene alone. Time to spread some democracy. <laughs> like, <laughs> yes, all the way to Stars and Stripes. Mm. Beautiful. Just beautiful. So good. All right, we're closing in. Who's got something else? That's true. I guess I'll uh, take us out with uh, Tensei Ojo to Tensei Reijo, which I guess is like the the magical revolution of the something princess and the something girl. I forget. In any Scott, event, yeah, you really like titles with a lot of words. It's 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 not like too too many words, but like when translated, it's more. Um, and this is in the I don't know if there's any other thing in this category, but it's Isekai Yuri Romance, uh, which. Is, yeah, definitely like a like an odd genre, but they make it work. Uh, so the basic setting is there's an isekai who's like this girl who's the princess of this kingdom. In this kingdom, all royals and nobles can use magic. It's what separates them from the commoners. She can't use magic. Possibly because she's an isekai, sort of unclear. Uh, but because she has like some memories from like technological earth, she basically just says, well, I'm going to make up, like use sort of like the spirit remnants of monsters that contain magical energy 
to make magical tools that will kind of let me function the level of a, of a mage. Uh, so she's sort of like, she goes out and hunts like monsters for the kingdom. She crafts all her own tools and she's considered uh, sort of like, like a heretic basically by anyone that is like a noble who's like, well, we get our power from magic. Like these things could be used by the common man. Like we don't like it, but also she's the princess. There's not too much you can do about it. Um, it's, it looks great. Like, the show looks great. The magic and the action are really, like, beautiful. Like, this is stuff, like, you'll see some of these magical effects and you'll be like, wow, it looks like I'm watching, you know, uh, Little Witch Academia or something. Hmm. Um, it's really fun to watch the princesses barge through life philosophy just blow apart what would otherwise be very tense social drama. Like, you know, one of the inciting events of the show is there's this, um, the high-class lady who ends up being, like, her romance, her romantic interest, is, like, being sort of socially destroyed by the prince of the country for reasons of his own. And all the nobles are looking down on her and there's like, you know, people are lobbing accusations at her that are false in the middle of this party and her life is falling apart. And like, right when it has reached its crescendo, like the princess just kind of like accidentally bursts through the window because she's trying to test a broom. I like take stock of the situation is like, whatever, you're coming with me, let's go. And there's like zips out of the room with her. Uh, there's no time scott did you watch um oh my gosh adventure time you know i did not i don't oh dang i was about to be like get on my swan <laughs> like bubblegum princess like busts into the dungeon or whatever and like saves finn on this ridiculous swan anyway for those of you who get it get on my swan is what i'm <laughs> thinking of nice or like another time like there's this dragon attacking because you know it's a show like this it's got to be a dragon attacking and the prince is in trouble at this point. Uh, like, like he's sort of under house arrest. He's like, Father, let me go forth and fight the dragon. Like, and if, I, and if I do succeed, like, I want to, you know, whatever, do some of these things I've been trying to do, these, these things I'm trying to change. And the father's like, Son, do you know that this means, like, you could be marching to your death? Like, no one knows how to fight a dragon. And, you know, they're having this dramatic conversation. And, like, meanwhile, the princess is already jetting off on her broomstick, which now works, and her magical super swords to go fight the dragon because she's really excited to get the magic stone. And, like, the prince finds out. He's like, dang it! Like, <laughs> this entire dramatic scene is ruined. Like, you know, no one can move anywhere near as fast as she can. Like, we're not even going to get close by the time she's fighting the dragon. So I think that's a lot of fun. Uh, the Yuri Momance is enjoyable. Uh, it focuses, I would say, exclusively on the actual romantic aspects. Like, there's nothing in there that's really titillating the viewer. Uh, wow, they commit? They commit. They commit. They do. And, uh, like, I thought that was good. So, uh, you could be in it for that. Uh, it does also have a really strong, like, dramatic side to it. Like, it does, you know, there's often funny, light moments and the princess just crashing through things. But there's, like, a lot of serious stuff going on. And when they do have it, it, it works. Like the characters, their motivations are have been well established over time. It never really feels like this stuff comes out of nowhere. So solidly put together. Uh, it sounds like if the dramatic moments are too tense for you, you could just break your window with a broom and feel better about right? life. Feel better about it. Like, just, just throw a broom out your window. I do feel like jumping through windows to make my entrances or exits would certainly take the edge off of some very tense meetings. Right. It's, the princess is exactly what you need. Uh, in terms of cons, uh, it can actually be really slow moving at times. Like they'll have that's surprising. Yeah. Like, like she's like fast moving, you know, kick butt. 
But then like when it's, you know, when they're having dialogue about stuff, it can really drag on. Like when the dragon's attacking, there's an entire episode where no one even goes to fight the dragon. They talk about it for the whole episode. And then the next episode, there's a dragon fight. And you're like, wow, like we know you can move. They just, just go, <laughs> go fight the dragon. Um, and the other thing I would say is like, I feel like there's sort of major plot threads that are not resolved by the end of the show. And yet the end of the show seems pretty conclusive. Like it's one of those shows where it's like, ah, oh, yes, there's, there's more to happen in the, in the princess's story and she's going to do blah, 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 make a good kingdom or whatever. But you don't really get the feeling they're angling for a second season. Like the show sort of like ends here and I could be proven wrong, but like there's some, there's some plot threads that are just, wow, I really thought you were introducing that for a reason, but it never came up again. <laughs> Is it a light novel, Scott? Is it one of those, like, go read the light novel for more of this? Uh, I really don't feel like it. Like, to, so this will be spoilers, so, you know, fair warning. Like, so she does take out the dragon, and in its dying throes, she's talking to it. And the dragon is like, you know, as my dying breath, like, I will curse you with, like, forbidden knowledge of some kind that, like, will engrave itself into your soul. And I was like, wow, when is that going to come back? It doesn't. <laughs> <laughs> okay. You can't drop something that heavy and then never touch it again. That's what I'm talking about. I was like, wow, what is this going to be? And then it was literally nothing. Like it never came up again and never, there was never even a thing where it was hinted at. But isn't like forbidden knowledge basically her jam at that point? That's the thing. Like she already has her plans and what to do with the dragon's like spirit stone thing. And she does it. And there aren't any problems with it. It works great all the time. No like, comeuppance. There's no comeuppance. She's just super powerful now. Like, it, it's like, what? I don't understand it. Um, but yeah, I mean, it doesn't really fall into any of the isekai problems. Like, this isn't a thing that has, like, RPG and leveling up elements. Uh, she is very powerful, but there are people that are stronger than her, and it never feels like, whatever, she's, it never feels like she's gotten her abilities by happenstance or chance, like she works hard for it. Uh, I don't know. It felt good. It didn't really feel like an isekai. By the end, it was like, why is this even an isekai? This could literally just be a fantasy story. It just story. wants to show up in the searches, Scott. It's such a buzzword. It's like, find yeah. our show. Just add the tag. They do make a few points out of like, here are some isekai things. Like the fact that she's making magical toasters to like give to the common man. You're like, okay, sure. But it never feels like it has an impact that like made it a really crucial part of the show. Whatever. It was a good show. You were saying, Brennan? Oh, uh, something that I think I saw pointed out and then noticed in the first episode, which I did watch, was that uh, she will use loan words from other Earth languages, and amidst like, but everybody else will only speak Japanese, so they are confused when she does. You know, she does do that, and it stops by episode three. <laughs> like oh. it, it happens in episodes one and two, and like for comedy, basically, and then by like third episode, it's like all in on whatever her being the princess of the country. And I was like, oh, well, it's like, like, you know, my partner remembered that. And I was like, oh, yeah, that did used to happen. Like, we haven't, you know, nothing like that's happened in a long time. So, yeah, played for comedy at the beginning. And they try to make a bit of a dramatic moment out of it at the end. But it really didn't need to be there. So, yeah, it might just be for the searches. Scott, it turns out the forbidden knowledge she now has is like the word trampoline, which the rest of the kingdom has no clue what that is. That's it. <laughs> you know, the dragon once had a vision of trampolines. That makes a lot of sense, actually. There you go. All right. So that's it. I recommended it, certainly. Good show. Nice. 
All right. Well, that that closes us out. And uh, yeah, nice job, everyone. Everyone, a lot of stuff sounded really interesting. Yeah, good season. Good stuff. All right. So catch you next time. And until then, be sure to fly off dramatically wherever you're going with a fleet of B-52 bombers behind you. It's the only way to travel. Critical mass. All right. Catch you next time. Bye. Bye. This is a podcast by the con artists. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe to us on iTunes or your Android podcast app of choice. For more anime and game-related content, please visit us online at theconartistsblog.com. Thanks for listening.